welcome to another episode of the Into the Wilderness podcast. This week we are bringing you an interview with Andrew Gilruth, who is the Director of Membership and Marketing and Communications at the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. It's an absolutely fascinating podcast. I've been speaking uh, with Andrew the last couple of weeks trying to get this teed up. I first met him um, at a live debate on rewilding at the Schoon Palace Game which, Fair. Which we covered. Which we did cover. And it's actually yeah. been an incredibly popular podcast as well. Very popular. We're going to be doing more of those, hopefully this time without the generator cutting out, which wasn't our fault. <laughs> yeah, we will. Uh, so we're going to be covering topics which you might expect. Grouse. Driven grouse shooting. Hares, mountain hares. Yep. Woodcock. Woodcock. Chris Packham. Heather Burning. Heather Burning, yeah. We're gonna, uh, and there's Harriers. a lot of talk about grouse management yep. and everything that that entails. Everything that it entails. And also, of course, the parliamentary debate on... Uh, Banning driven grouse shooting, which was not supported by a single MP uh, when it was debated, so that was good news. But you're going to hear about that because um, Andrew was actually was actually there listening to the evidence. Yep, we've got a few uh, few shout outs uh, to begin with. We got a, a message uh, here from uh, Lee Anthony Beat, and uh, apparently him and all his family listen to the show. So thank you very much for listening. Yeah, and thanks for and share, and sharing and the love of the family. And enter some competitions. Yeah, definitely enter some competitions. You have a chance to win some stuff. Yeah. Um, another shout out for uh, another listener, John Seeley. Uh, he has recently set up a, an online forum called shootgame.co.uk. And it's basically a, an online discussion forum to talk about all the good things that you enjoy doing. Uh, it's broken up into different types of hunting, uh, dog handling and um, driven shooting and all, all that stuff. So if there's something that you want to ask, questions, have discussions with people, seems like a great place to do it. It's only just recently set up, but it seems to be growing. Uh, it's got a very uh, very nicely set out homepage, so go check that out. Now, for all our listeners, you need to keep sp- careful eye on our Facebook page and any information we're putting out over the next few weeks because we have a colossal amount of prizes <coughs> that we're going to be giving away. We're also going to be doing a Christmas show as well where we will be giving away stuff. It'll probably be live on YouTube. Yep. Uh, like we did all over a year ago now. We, it was our first ever YouTube live podcast. Never done one before. And we did it a year ago. And it was quite successful over yeah. a year ago. So. Very successful. So we're definitely going to be doing more of that. Uh, and yeah, loads of chances to win prizes, which is good for you guys. <laughs> good for all of our listeners. Talking of prizes, we have a competition winner. Yes, we do. Uh, it is written on my piece of paper. Uh, Woodland Bill, otherwise known as Bill Roberts. I think Woodland Bill was his Instagram name. I like, it? yeah, it was. Woodland Bill. Um, congratulations, You've won Woodland a reloading Bill. manual. Hornady reloading manual. That is what you have won. But actually, uh, we, he left a comment. Uh, people just had to leave a comment the reason, on Instagram, the reason why they wanted it. And he's actually giving it to someone else. He is. So what we did was we actually, uh, there was however many entrants there was, there was a lot of entries into this. Huge amount. Uh, and we basically just... Uh, we picked a number. Uh, yeah, picked a random number and then counted down. And he was number two. We always keep it fair. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, you need to contact us, Bill. That's the only way that you get to claim your prize. Uh, loads of different ways through our Facebook, through our Instagram. Email us at podcast at paceproductionsuk.com um, or send us a message across one of the platforms. There's loads of ways you can contact us. Uh, while I'm talking about that, I should probably mention our website, which uh, we're actually just about to put up a few new blog posts. Um, which is thepacebrothers.com. That's thepacebrothers.com. And on there, not only will you find blog posts, all of our series, which episode five was out recently, it's doing very well. A lot of people are watching it. 
Um, but you will also find information on our wilderness hunts. Uh, we just had somebody drop out of the January hunt, so there is a space there, and there is a space in the December hunt, which is uh, fast approaching. It is fast approaching. Also, our mugs are in stock. Oh, yes. So if you want one of our mugs, then uh, go and order one. <laughs> and, uh, you can, of course, you can order T-shirts at any time as well. The people who have already ordered the T-shirts are on their way, so we will be sending out uh, all of the orders, hopefully, by the end of this month. Yep, hopefully. Uh, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else we need to cover. No, I think that's about it for today. And uh, will be another competition, which you will find out about at the end of the show. It is uh, going to be a chance to win, if I just go and pick it up from the ground. It's a, a set of safety shooting glasses uh, made by Smith Optics Elite. Uh, it's There's interchangeable lenses in there. We should have brought the box of prizes in to tell everyone what we're giving away. I, we'll do I'm, that next I'm time. not even joking. We have amazing prizes. We've been giving away amazing prizes, but we have some fantastic stuff for people to win over the next uh, few months. So what I'm going to do, for those people who are on... Uh, who watch this on YouTube? I'm even going to model the safety glasses now, which is actually incredibly difficult with my you headphones. Can't, you can't on. do it with headphones on. There you go. Look, looking cool with the the shade, the shade option of it. Bit, it bit comes dark. with a clear lens and a shaded lens. Smith Optics Elite comes in a great carry case, and uh, it's a good thing to have safety glasses, especially if you um, do any clay shooting. Perfect for that. But we'll tell you how to enter and win these at the end of the show. Yep. Well, enjoy the jo the show. Very factual. Yeah, incredibly informative, level-headed discussion. Exactly the kind of thing that you need to share, share with, with people, people who have um, any questions or doubts about driven gas shooting and its management and its potential benefits. I think uh, we pretty fairly cover both sides um, so that you can see the pros and cons and respond to some of the, the things that you see um, across the media and on, on social media that never really get a, an honest response. But you're going to hear all of that right now. You need to share it with your friends. Definitely. This podcast is um, supported and brought to you by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. They are Scotland and Northern Ireland's largest field sports advocacy body, representing members' interests across the UK, fire, from firearms licensing to wildlife and land management to the broader field sports, insurance and legal support, Sax is run by its members for its members. Andrew, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. Thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. We are going to be covering a lot of things that a lot of people have been asking us about for quite a number of months and, and topics which are incredibly relevant to current debates and debates that have just, uh, just happened, especially with the, the parliamentary debate on driven grouse shooting. But before we get into that, I want to know a little bit about you and your sort of early life, your interests leading up to the point where you're in the position that you're in now within the GWCT. Yeah, I suppose I, I was lucky enough to spend a lot of my, my early life wandering around my grandparents' farm. Um, I spent a lot of my own childhood. Um, and I thought that, I, that it, was a, you know, it, was, it was a perfect idyll. Um, but in reality, it was a working countryside. It was a mixed farm. And it was it was it was a very important place for me. Now looking back, and we're trying to decide on how we should reform our common agricultural policy as we leave Europe, um, and what implications that's going to have for the countryside, both for uh, the wildlife, but also for those farmers and everybody else that's dependent on the countryside. Mm. 
And what was it? Uh, what? Where were you before you ended up within the, uh, the game conservancy? What was your sort of path into that? Um, well, I've always been, you know, so passionately involved in the countryside. But um, having been um, spent a lot of my childhood on the edge of the Yorkshire Moors, actually, I went to go and work down in London uh, to find a job, um, and worked in various advertising agencies before being persuaded to to join the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust. Oh, brilliant, and. Current in the current role that you're in, what what does that encompass? What is your sort of if if there is such a thing as a, a day to day, what is your day to day? Well, for me, for day to day includes making sure that we've um, noticed what, who's saying what in the newspapers and online, uh, and if appropriate, uh, responding to it. So making it clear uh, where things um, are either things have been omitted, uh, omitted or have not been put into context. And that's particularly important to us. Bear in mind, our, I suppose, our scientific heritage here. We've got 65 full-time scientists, um, and we publish a lot of scientific papers. And so we're keen to make sure that the correct information is portrayed in the correct context in any debate that's taking place in the countryside. Mm. Uh, and although a lot of people may have heard of GWCT, a lot of people won't actually know exactly what it is you guys are and, and what you do. And maybe so maybe you could give us a little bit of a history of where the organizations come from and how, how vast a spectrum of topics you look into and cover and research. Sure. So, the, I mean, like all um, sort of countryside organisations, we've got a, a sort of rich and sort of colourful background. The original starting point for applied scientific research uh, in the countryside in this country um, wasn't actually in the, the charitable or necessarily in the pure conservation arm. Um, we were actually originally started by ICI as a commercial interest because they wanted to know what was happening to the wildlife in our countryside in the 1930s. And the reason that they wanted to understand what was happening in the 1930s was as an outbreak of the strong wild worm burden in grey partridge. And they were worried about that because that was affecting their sales of shotgun cartridges. <laughs> so the original origins of applied research, i.e. putting on a pair of Wellingtons and going into the countryside and studying what was really happening, actually started with a, with a commercial interest. And then since then, um, obviously, we've... You know, we've moved on. Um, ICI no longer directly involved uh, with a charity, set up as a charity, um, and have carried on that work about studying what is really going on in the countryside and trying to make the world a better place based on a true understanding of what's happening. So, how how do you go about organising research within the organisation? Is it something? Do you come up with, with a, a plan yourself on a particular topic, or is it something that comes to you, or are you always responding? Uh, re responding to consultations with backed up research, in fact? Well, it probably covers two sort of broad areas. One is long term historic data sets. So, for example, um, some of the farms that we've been studying in the Sussex area, we've been doing that for over 40 years. Are you going to the same fields, counting the same areas for the same insects to try and understand what's happening to the crops, what's happening to the wildlife in those areas? And that includes various game records and game bags, including some of the records which people have generously sent to us. So we have data um, relating to what has been shot in the country going back to Darwin's time. So there's some long-term data monitoring, and that includes both uh, insects, wildlife, and fish. 
um, but also includes slightly more short-term experimental ideas. Um, what is particularly important to us is being able to understand whether you can demonstrate through experiment that something has an effect. So if you wanted to understand the effect that a gamekeeper is, has on a piece of ground, you would have to have an area where there's a gamekeeper working, um, then when there's a gamekeeper that's not working, and a control site, and switching them after a period of time so that you could prove that it was the gamekeeper which made the difference mm -hmm. as opposed to the weather or any other variable. It's quite well known that the, the GWCT support not all, but a, a lot of practices which are tied into shooting and hunting and fishing uh, from a, a commercial point of view and the management practices that fall on the back of that. But we do have a, a number of listeners who might not shoot or, or, or might not even fish, but just have an interest in the countryside. So maybe you could just um, highlight your independence within the, the, the GWCT and how you're not, it is scientific fact, you're not affected or swayed by you know one one or the other because there might be a perception GWCT because you know you're one of the f few organisations who regularly supports management practices off the back of of shooting off the back of shooting as a sport. Yes, um, I mean in terms of just being being clear on that. Thank you. The the GWCT is a charity. Uh, we act in the public interest. Everything that we say and we do in terms of for the wildlife in the countryside is in the public interest. Um, it's just we are fortunate in this country that there are sportsmen up and down the country which appreciate and value that conservation effort and are prepared to fund it. Um, and we're deeply honoured to be able to be involved in that. But we're not here in the defence of shooting or fishing. Um, we're simply here to be able to observe and monitor what's going on and advise people about how to change and move on and, and if you like, change best practice. And the best practice that gamekeepers undertake today uh, in the countryside is quite different from that which their grandfathers would have been doing, for example. Sure. Let's move on to grouse because it's a very large and especially recently quite a prickly topic. And we are going to talk about the, the parliamentary debate. But before we get into that, for those people who listen who know what a grouse looks like but don't really understand or certainly don't have um, a balanced understanding of what grouse merlin management is maybe you can just we can, we'll, we'll dig into sort of each aspect as you as you bring it up but if we can start with what does merlin management on a driven grouse moor look like and why is it good because there's a lot of uh uh, in the media, mainly about the negative effects of it. Yes, I mean, it, that's that's right. I mean, the important thing to remember is that the moorland as we know it today that we see is not a natural landscape. It is a landscape that was created by man over thousands of years. Slowly over time, trees would have been removed and used for, for either as fuel uh, or, for, or for building. Um, and in order to improve it from its... Uh, for grazing uh, for animals, uh, the moor started to be managed, and that's when the introduction of um, burning parts of the, the moor in small little patches that had been done to improve it for, for grazing for, for farmers, for both the, for deer um, and for cattle, and then later on for, for sheep, and then later on again uh, also for grouse. So what we see as a as a wilderness today. Um, truly speaking, is, is, is man-made in the same way that a hay meadow is 
man-made or a coppiced woodland is man-made, so our moorlands are. So there's a whole combination of things which have been undertaken up on the moors to create what we now know as wilderness. Mm. And the the actual upland and heather moorland is, and it's probably not appreciated by a lot of the public, It is our place within the worldwide context is incredibly important for protecting that. Uh, it is. Um, it's believed that 75% of the world's um, upland, Heather Moorland, is, is found in the UK. And that is because across the rest of the Europe and the rest of the world, these moorlands are disappearing fast. And it doesn't take much for Heather Moorland uh, to disappear. Um, and in fact, after the Second World War, this country made a colossal effort to get rid of as much of it as they could. It was seen as unproductive land. Uh, and, and the national policy was to lime the heather to kill it mm -hmm. um, and sow it with uh, grasses that would push through because once you get grass dominance uh, the heather then can't can't thrive so all you had to do was to kill the heather and fertilize the ground a bit encourage the grass to start growing grasses will outcompete the heather so you saw enormous um, heather retreat um, so we've lost about 80% of our, our heather moorlands since uh, since the First World War. So we've lost an awful lot, but today in the world's context, we still have most three quarters of it. So we do need to look after it. We have to remember that the heather itself and this heather moorland is a man-made landscape. If it was allowed um, to regenerate back into its wild state, uh, it would start scrubbing over. Uh, the heather would become long and woody and keep collapsing and then eventually it would start trying to return to some other state. It wouldn't be no longer be, be this heather moorland as we know it today. There's often an argument that we, especially in the sort of rewilding context, which is something we're not really going to go into today, but that we should allow the landscape to do what the landscape wants to do. Would, and I, I suppose this is quite a, a reaching question, but in terms of the habitat that we see and the species that it supports, is that a, a plus or a minus? Is it, would we see a greater diversity if we just let the hills be the hills? I suppose the important thing that we have to recognize is that every time you, you change the landscape, whether it be in the uplands or the lowlands, or change the use of it, um, so if you wanted to plant trees on it or, or let it scrub over, you will, you will advantage some species and disadvantage others. Mm -hmm. Um, and the question is, you know, the nation has to be honest about what is it that it that it really wants um, wants from our moorlands. And at the moment, most of the the if the, the high value conservation status birds that nest in the uplands that we all aspire to look after, like the the, the curlew, for example, is it likes open moorland. It doesn't like scrubbed over moorland. So that would be disadvantaged as it starts to close, starts to scrub over, be disadvantaged if there's, if there's greater woodland. Um, but the woodland species would appreciate it. So we just have to be honest about what it is that, that we really want. Um, so we have to remember that our uplands contain, you know, 18 species of European or international importance. Um, and we have international commitments from the 1992 Rio Convention on biodiversity to look after them. So we do have we do have to make some choices. In terms of moorland managed for driven grouse, which is where a lot of the debate centres, what is what is what is the truth about the benefit to these species? And that's something which 
obviously the, the shooting industry hold up and say, you know, we've done our, we've done surveys or wh- whoever has done surveys off the back of um, either. I know one of the um, estates near here has been to do with subsidies and they had to get surveys done to prove that uh, that there was a greater benefit to other species. But what is, what is the truth there? Does driven grouse shooting and the management that goes into that benefit these species over and above um, a merland that wasn't managed or isn't managed for the same purposes? Yes, you'd have, you'd have heard um, in, during these discussions um, and debates that have been held, there, there are two primary studies which are, are often talked about. One is the one where we went back and we looked at what happened in North Wales um, in the Berwyn area uh, um, when driven grouse shooting ended and, and monitored what happened and we saw some quite stark declines there um, of many ground nesting species in the absence of having effective uh, legal predator control by gamekeepers on the on the ground that that was if you like one insight another big insight which is quite powerful is where we went and um, studied did a big um, study over 10 years um, up at, up at Otterburn and we managed to we had a number of areas that were keepered, areas that weren't keepered, and at the toss of a coin, after five years, they were flicked over again, and there were separate control sites. So that was a true experimental design. You could actually say that they were managed in exactly the same way, other than the fact that there was a gamekeeper present, and they were carrying out predator control as normally conducted legally by a gamekeeper. Um, and what we found there was was quite startling from a conservation um, perspective um, because we found in the absence of predator control, for example, curlew numbers dropped by 17% a year. Um, And we've calculated that the low breeding success seen on these moors where predators are not controlled, um, golden plover numbers would drop by 81% and curlew by 47% after 10 years. So these are real uh, these are real concerns. That doesn't mean to say that these numbers are true for all species. So, um, for example, if you would look at crow numbers, the crow numbers would go up mm. in the areas um, where the gamekeeping stopped because those are one of the species which are, which are legally controlled by gamekeepers. But from a conservation perspective, the crow population in the UK is not of concern, it's not under threat. So it's a question of how we want to manage our landscape so that we can help those species which need it. Yeah, and I suppose that ties back to what you were saying earlier about there needs to be an honesty about what we want as a choice. A, yeah, yeah, as a greater general public. Yes, they might have to go and kill crows. Yes, they'll uh, go and kill stoats. But is that, what? would you rather see more of those or would you rather help protect the species such as you've mentioned, like like curlew, which are actually uh, you know threat. suffering and, yeah. and under threat. Sure, mm. and I think that the important point to note here is that these these studies of the effect of, for example, removing uh, crows, is known now and understood, and that is why um, the RSPB remove um, some crow populations at reserves where their ground nesting birds are being threatened by them. So this is this is important that everybody understands this that this there is a there is a relationship and if you want to help these species then we have to do it and we have to get on with it so we can't just stand around and keep discussing these declines. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so from what you've said, it's very clear from the studies that predator control has a greater benefit beyond maybe the primary species that w they would be concerned of on a driven grouse model, which is obviously grouse with a spin-off of the, of the other benefits. But th there are benefits far beyond just the grouse with regard to other wading bird species. Yes, we know not only uh, from wader birds, but there's also there's the, the benefits for, for other species too, including mountain hares, which no doubt is another subject you want to talk about. But, yes, we are definitely. Um, but there are there are other species as well. We also know um, that the um, black grouse on the, the fringes of, of moors are doing are doing particularly well as in keepered areas. So these, it keeps extending. Where it doesn't benefit things at the moment, and we're trying to resolve, is for birds of prey. So we have to be honest about that too. Yeah, and no, we'll, um, as we get to the end, talking about grouse, we'll, we'll, we'll touch on birds of prey and the, the issues that we, we face there. I just want to step back to heather burning because that is within the grouse debate. It, it is a topic which keeps coming up, and I just refreshed my memory uh, last night by watching the, the parliamentary debate with... Um, with Mark Avery and Jeff Knott from the RSPB, and it was something that they kept pulling back as part of their argument. So maybe you could just start by explaining for those people who don't know what on earth heather burning is and why why it's done, and then weigh up the, the positives and negatives and actually give us a level view of where we sit with what we actually know, what is fact. Yeah, so heather burning is is something which has has been undertaken for thousands of years, um, and is probably the most the, the original, the most basic um, land management tool that we developed. And on these moors, and if you ever drive across them, you'll you'll notice that the the, the heather keeps changing colour in these small blocks, and that is because the heather is burnt a bit like a chessboard in a series of little mosaics. And at the moment, the reason why this is done is to create a whole series of different heights and ages of heather, um, because different birds like and need different heights of heather. Sometimes they need the young shoots at, at ground level, so actually they're able to eat those, and the chicks can eat them. Um, other places, they need slightly taller heather, because um, that's good nesting areas to nest and, and hide away in. So, And it's not just for the grouse. The other species... Uh, like it too, so it's quite common for golden plover, for example, to actually nest on burnt areas of ground because they like to be able to see anything approaching and coming towards them. Mm -hmm. So by having this sort of diverse combination of, of heathers, we've also discovered um, that we also end up with a diverse combination of plants as well um, because one of the things that you need is if the heather or anything else becomes too dominant, then you will end up with it becoming very dark um, down at, at ground level so the younger plants won't grow up and come through. So this, this is an ancient craft. But having said that, the evidence about the, the, the wider impacts of what happens is poorly understood. Some of the studies uh, indicate, for example, that it will uh, raise the water table and other studies show that perhaps it lowers the water table. So there's a lot of contradictory evidence at the moment um, amongst uh, being in the scientific papers that are being published. And it's generally felt by scientists that actually more work needs to be done, particularly over the medium to long term, before actually any management decisions are, are taken. Because there are also two trains of thoughts about what to do 
if you don't have enough information. One train of thought says, well, if you don't understand all the effects, you shouldn't be doing it. Mm-hmm. But actually, from an international perspective, um, biologists say, well, if you don't understand the cause and effect, you shouldn't stop or change what you're doing until you understand what the change is going to have. Mm-hmm. So don't stop doing something you've been doing for thousands of years unless you understand what's going to happen as a result or the outcome may not be what you were looking for. There are clearly the positives that you've gone over there, but are there negatives to actually burning the hill? First of all, from a habitat point of view, let me, let's me let tackle that first. Is there anything that would prefer us not to burn the hills as we do? Um, well, there are certain places on, on hills. I mean, I was talking about how you know, gamekeeping has changed and, and moorland management has changed. So, for example, um, moorland managers would be careful now not to burn uh, near watercourses. Um, they might mow it um, or just leave it because they don't want um, any any of the burnt areas to be, be near watercourses. So there are, there are places where it won't be done. It's not done, for example, on steep slopes either, because if you if you burn the heather on a steep slope, um, then the next thing, if there's a, a lot of rain, it could wash away um, the, if the, the actual top layer of the peat, and you might actually have quite bad erosion. So it's normal not to be able to, to burn or, or control uh, the vegetation on steep slopes, just leave it where it is. So there's been quite a lot, of, if you like, adjustment to be able to be able to understand where and when uh, we should should be burning heather on the moors. Sorry, you got a uh, question. Oh, I was going to say that a big thing that kept on coming through, and this is way before the debate even started, uh, was the the flooding. That the yeah. due to the burning, it was flooding, and Mark Avery even went on BBC the day after some serious floods down in England and said that the grouse moors were directly to blame for the the flooding down. Uh, you know, further, further downstream, down yeah. yeah. Is is this the case? Yeah, I mean, the, the, it is entirely possible that there might be very localised incidents where there is a direct relationship in between any land use and uh, and flooding. However, in the example used where Mark Avery and Chris Packham were very publicly saying that the flooding at Hebden Bridge uh, was caused by the grouse moors, uh, there is no evidence to support that. Um, and the the EFRA committee at Westminster looked into has looked into flooding in detail, and there was no parliamentary no evidence provided to Parliament that grouse moors have been causing flooding. And they're perfectly clear in their written report that they didn't actually receive any. And you'll also note that the RSPB in their written submission to that EFRA committee did not suggest that grouse moors were causing flooding. Interesting. Um, in terms of Water pollution. That this is another another topic which gets brought up. Burning tied to the actual quality of water, and well, I might as well cover this now that we're going to talk about the actual debate. This was another thing that was brought up there. I think particularly pushed by Mark Avery, uh, where he basically said, "We as the public are all paying for driven grass moors because we have to pay for more treatment of of water because of poor quality water coming off the hills." Uh, I mean. In terms of the actual studies that have been done, where do we where do we sit with the science with the science? Well, um, the current available science is is contradictory. Um, in in some places, it will it will tell you um, that it is um, it, 
there's an increase in dissolved organic uh, carbon in the water. But these studies, say, have been done over five years. Uh, these small patches of heather may be being burnt on a 15 or 20 year rotation. So what we'd need to do is we'd need to be able to understand over the long term what is, what is the overall effect. We'd expect to see an increase in dissolved organic carbon immediately after a piece of ground has been burnt. Mm -hmm. But it may well be that actually it has a significant reduction in dissolved organic uh, carbon in later years. That's, that's poorly understood um, at the moment. And this is why scientists from around the world are saying, for goodness sake, UK, wake up and study things over a longer period of time. You are jumping to conclusions about the overall impact. And it could well be that actually the burning itself or this process of burning these small patches of, of heather is actually resulting in more carbon being stored rather than carbon being lost. And the overall management of the moors and the way they're being managed about making them wetter and that in making them wetter locks more carbon in the peat um, actually has a much better effect um, for the UK than by suggesting it should stop. And by the way, if you suggest that it does stop, and by, if for any reason you then have a wildfire, <laughs> yeah. and, it, and you have a lot of material or fuel load up on the hill, and the, um, the fire brigade have been quite clear about their concerns about any, any attempt to reduce the amount of burning in the uplands, um, you have this increase in fuel load. Um, once um, you have a, a very hot burn, you won't just be burning the heather, you'll set fire to the peat underneath. Mm. And once you set fire to the peat underneath, um, that can burn for weeks and weeks and will slowly keep burning underground and can spread and is extremely difficult to get out or extinguish. And this is a real concern from an environmental perspective. We have not experienced one of these large-scale wildfires that, you, that have been experienced in Australia um, or in some parts of North America, where vegetation has been constantly left, this material has built up, and then once the fuel load has reached a certain level, once it's caught fire, it, caused, it causes huge damage. So it might well be that you have elevated um, levels of dissolved organic carbon um, in a few places in a few years, but you could end up, if you had a wildfire, you could have much bigger damage over a much longer period of time. And that's what these scientists are saying. There's just, we need to look at these studies over a longer period of time. Yeah, we actually made a film about uh, Heather Burning not that, not that long ago, and you know, that was a big point was that what, by reducing yeah, the load, yeah. The potential for wild, wildfires, if you didn't systematically uh, burn the Heather through muir burn, uh, the risk is very uh, and you, you saw it this summer actually we had multiple incidents where barbecues were left and uh, luckily they were caught in time yeah uh, probably by a gamekeeper <laughs> yeah. well, I think well, there was yeah, yeah a lot of gamekeepers uh, helped put that was it down in Yorkshire I actually can't remember no but there was some up here as oh, well some up here. because some of the gamekeepers up further north in fact where we filmed it um, are actually the retained firefighters for the area as well yeah they are yeah, well, they're certainly the ones that have a particular interest in making sure that a that a fire is out. Absolutely. Because um, once once there is a problem on a moor, uh, if the if the beat if the peat actually catches fire, that has very long term consequences for a grouse moor. So the one thing they do not want to do is they do not ever want the peat to be alight. Mm -hmm. um, so they only ever want to 
burn the, the header off the top. They're not interested in any of the rest of it being burnt, and that's why they understand this acutely. Yeah, it's uh, maybe a, a misconception from the, the public when they see parts of the hill ablaze. It's actually quite a, a cold burn, and it's just the surface. That, that's all they're, they're really burning. And, and very controlled. That's the other thing yeah. people need to understand, how how controlled it actually is. There's a lot of people up there making sure it doesn't get out of control and... And, and the systematic yeah. burning of patches. Uh, I wanted to ask you um, again, Andrew, about drainage. You touched on it briefly, and this is maybe another misconception. There is this, uh, I think it also came out in maybe some of the online discussions with regard to the grass debate before the parliamentary debate, was that uh, grass moors are draining moorlands. But that's actually kind of the opposite from the, the truth. And yes, there has been a lot of drainage in moorlands, but that was something that was done in the past. So maybe you could elaborate on that a bit. Yes, I mean, the, I mean, the reality is that no one's ever dug a drain on a on a moor, on a grouse moor for grouse um, because you don't need to. It doesn't advantage uh, the grouse at all, and it you certainly wouldn't be any economic reason for doing it. Uh, the reason that our moorlands were drained, as were huge swathes of our lowlands as well, was for increased agricultural production. Um, you could get grants all the way up until the nineteen nineteen eighties. Um, some of them. Uh, capital grants were up to 80% um, to actually dig ditches in order to be able to drain moorland. It was seen as unproductive, barren land, and government policy was to was to bring this land into increased agricultural use, mostly through grazing. So vast ditches were dug all across the moors to try and actually drain it down, and this was seen as part of a national effort to improve our own food supply. Mm. Um, since then, um, more owners have noticed that once, after you dug the ditches, it started causing significant erosion. Um, so busy started filling them back up again. And now it has become, since then, it's become national policy to start filling these ditches back up again. And that's what they've been doing with a vengeance. Um, because you don't want your grouse moor to, to dry out. Um, and so before it was even government policy, they were busy trying to re-wet the moors. Um, so thousands of miles of these ditches are being are being blocked up um, to try and keep the water um, up on these moors. Uh, this is important for the for the moor because they don't want the peat to dry out. They don't want the habitat to change. Um, and this is important for lower down um, a catchment because they don't want the water to disappear quickly uh, down down into the valley valleys below. And this is policy not only in the uplands but this is in other places I and mean, I'm currently just standing just outside the new forest um, there's also policy in the new forest they're trying to hold the water in the forest itself and not let it disappear into the towns below it yeah, that's not something that uh, comes out in the media it's not common often, knowledge is it, is it? <laughs> um, just to, to finish up on burning uh, there's also maybe this uh, perception that uh, gamekeepers uh, and moors basically do what they like with regard to heather burning. If they want to burn it, you know, they go burn it. But there is actually um, fairly strict guidelines and uh, regulation in place in terms of times of year. So maybe you could just go over that and why particular times of year have been picked for burning. Um, yes, I mean, the, the, the important thing to remember here is the, the important bits of moor that we want preserved as a, as a nation um, have been designated as uh, sites of, of special scientific interest, so these triple SIs. And once your your moor or your area of moor has been designated as a triple SI, 
Um, there are then very strict rules. You're only, you can only burn with a license from Natural England, and they will insist that you've mapped out where you're burning, why you're burning, um, how regularly you've revisited. So, have you? Is it 15 or 20 years, or since you were since you last burnt that piece? Uh, what measures have you put in place to make sure that it won't spread somewhere else? So it becomes a very very cool controlled burn. So all of these issues are carefully monitored monitored by Natural England, and even outside those areas, there is a there's a national like code, um, which means that you can only burn um, effectively in the winter and spring months um, when the the species aren't actually breeding on the ground, and it's not so dry that you'd end up with a wildfire. And the equivalent up in Scotland would be uh, a license from SNH, I assume. Sorry, yes, it would. Yeah. Yeah. Moving on from that to the, uh, we won't talk about this for too long, but the economic benefit of it. Where does the GWCT uh, fit into the relevance of that? Because that's another thing that, that's brought up as a, a big uh, a big plus point for driven grouse shooting is the, the employment it brings to an area, the jobs it provides, and the greater economic benefit to local communities. I mean, is that something that you take into account when you're you're pulling in evidence to support or critique something such as driven grass shooting? Well, we have to make sure that all of us are going going back to to first principles and and under uh, international protocols about conservation. You must not only take into account um, the environmental effects of what is happening, whatever land use is happening. You must also take into account uh, the economic and social effects. You must have all three must be aligned. You cannot, from an international perspective on, from conservation, focus on just one. You must take into account all three. So yes, we do look at it um, very carefully and we're very interested um, in this, in balance, in creating this balance. And if you want to um, change your land use, so you want to um, you want to plant trees and to put commercial forestry blocks, and don't forget, um, huge swathes of land have been have been turned into forestry blocks. You know what? How much employment will, will stem from that? Will there be um, be some employment when the trees first go in? Um, and there won't be a great deal of employment for the next 20 years, and then there'll be another flurry of activity. Um, likewise, if you want to put wind turbines in. There will be um, the initial um, putting in the roads and tracks because that's what you need to put in. And if you're going to start putting in turbines because you need machinery and cranes to be able to get up onto these moors to be able to lift up these structures. Um, so that will create some, some, some employment uh, in the initial years. Um, a lot of the specialist uh, technical staff um, probably won't be local staff because that will be knowledge which will come from somewhere else. They may not even stay in a, in a local B&B because the contractors may have a lot of staff, so they may be in a, um, a bigger hotel in a town rather than in the, in the smaller villages. Um, and again, there's not going to be a great deal of employment until the things need replacing 20 or 30 years later. So there are some real concerns um, about that, and they're not imaginary ones. They are ones that, have been, that we've seen um, at the uh, on Langham Moor on the Scottish borders when the, the when our joint raptor study uh, finished in the 1990s um, five gamekeepers lost their jobs because the moor was no longer um, economic and that had an impact uh, on the town on the local school and on the hotels and pubs so it, it is it is something that is very real I mean it's banded about 
and also equally dismissed by those people who might want to see driven grass shooting shut down is something which can be easily replaced. Uh, just to bring in the, uh, the actual debate in Parliament again, I think the, the thing that was brought up by Mark Avery was that, <clears throat> and it seemed quite flippant when he, when he mentioned it, was that, in fact, if we turned over all these Merlins um, to wildlife tourism, we would, in fact, make more money. Now, I, in the bit of research I'm, uh, that I did for um, talking about the reintroduction of lynx, which we're not going to go into here, I looked at the, some of the studies that have been done with regard to that, and I found them very, very far-reaching yeah. how much money they thought people were going to, to spend to, to come and you know, wander the moors to look for wildlife. Yes, I mean, the, we mustn't forget there have been some fantastic, you know, tourist successes. I mean, some people would say, and I don't know it well, uh, but I'm quite happy to believe what I've read on the Isle of Mull uh, with seagulls and, and that being a, a, a tourist attraction. Yeah. Um, on the other side, I've also seen, you know, at Langham, um, when the five gamekeepers lost their jobs um, and the, the, the local town suffered as, from a result of that, um, even though there were more hen harriers on that moor at Langham than there were in the whole of England. And you could see the harrier platforms, the nests, um, without actually even having to leave that far away from your car. You could have stood at the edge of the road with a pair of binoculars and observed those platforms. So you could see them. They were well known about. They were well talked about. They were in the birding world. Um, everybody was talking about how many hen harriers there were at Langham, and yet no money went back into that town as a result of those hen harriers being there. So it is very easy um, to make general comments about you'll have the, the ecotourism dividend, but in actual fact, at, on Langham Moor, um, which was was costing the best part of half a million pounds a year to run, including its capital costs, was not being, couldn't, that funding couldn't be replaced uh, by tourism alone, even though it was a well-known site, it was publicly being talked about as to how, much, how many birds of prey there were there. Yeah, it's something we see the world over. The same, the same is true of uh, some arguments for removing, let's say, trophy hunting in in parts of Africa is replace it with ecotourism. But in some places it works, but in a lot of places it just it just simply doesn't. Where the landscape doesn't lend itself to it, and uh, you, th you think especially, especially if someone's just going for the day, they drive in, they take what they want to take from the landscape, and then they they leave again. They might not even buy anything. They might take their lunch from wherever they're from, yeah. and so no money's been put in, but they've taken something from the landscape. Yeah, it's quite a. I suppose it's quite a simplistic view to assume that uh, it can be replaced by ecotourism. Uh, you were talking about hen harriers there, and that's actually on my list because that is the pinup species <laughs> that gets yep. talked about yep. all of the time. In fact, it, it probably is the catalyst for the petition that Mark Avery started and the catalyst for the, the resulting debate. What, a lot of people won't have even seen a hen harrier. I actually was lucky enough to see one uh, one week ago on a grouse moor just up in, uh, in Grampian when I was doing some interviews there for a project. Uh, but a lot of people won't have seen one. So can you just tell us, uh, for the listeners, a little bit about you know, the hen harrier as a bird and why we have this controversy that we have? Yes, so um, most won't have, won't have seen hen harriers. This was at one time a, a common bird of prey that would have existed in, in every county across the UK. Um, however, during the Victorian times, 
um, when the control of birds of prey by gamekeepers was legal and was legal up until 1954, um, the most birds of prey in the UK suffered dramatic declines. And most, and the hen harrier was one of those, and it retreated. The hen harrier retreated all the way up um, into the, into the, uh, mostly to the Western Isles and some to Orkney. Um, so it didn't exist um, in 1900. Didn't exist on the UK mainland. Uh, since then, it's enjoyed um, legal protection, and the the, the um, birds of prey population have started to expand and the hen harrier population has started creeping back to the mainland and started progressing um, further and further south. Um, and the last sort of formal count of, of, of hen harriers um, is, is about is 630 uh, hen harrier nests or if you like pairs and that was in 20, 2010 and we're waiting for the next count of um, hen harriers. So, from that perspective, that's a big success. Um, they've been particularly successful in Scotland, and they've been less successful in establishing themselves in England, and that's what the controversy's been about. There's creep, creeping south, but they should, the range expansion further into England at the moment is not happening. Uh, and is there a reason for that? Do we, do we know why that's happening? Uh, you, you mentioned the, the Langham Project uh, earlier. I mean, that was a good example of hen harrier numbers increasing with Merlin management for driven grouse shooting? Um, yes, so at the, the original um, joint raptor study in the, in the 1990s, um, we went and stood there and we watched the monitored, the hen harrier numbers uh, going up. Uh, but sadly, we also monitored the decline of the red grouse population and it declined so much that in, in the end, uh, the, the shooting ceased. Um, and when the keepers left, no one took over the, the predator control. So um, in the end, the, the fox and crow numbers started to creep back up. And as a result of that, the hen harrier, which nests on the ground, its numbers went down. So at the end of that, the hen harrier numbers returned back down to where they were before we started the project. So we started at two pairs, they went up to 22 pairs and went back down to two pairs. Hmm. Then the gamekeepers left. That's a, a significant increase. Yeah, and a significant decline. Yeah. Yeah. So, and with that, the other um, moorland specialists um, went up and down as well. So the, the, the curlew and the lapwing and the other, the other ground nesting specialists, they all followed the same trend. So the, the, the important point is trying to find a place where we can have the coexistence um, of some hen harriers alongside some red grouse. And so that's ultimately what DEFRA are trying to achieve um, with their plan in England and Wales. Um, so they're trying to encourage this southern range expansion from Scotland moving south. Mm. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that. It is, it was it's public knowledge, um, uh, I think probably a number of months ago now, that the RSPB pulled out of the hen harrier action plan. Where does that leave a plan to have this this coexistence and everybody working together to the to the same end um well it's important to, to go back to sort of first principles this is a, a plan um, which originally the uh, rspb wrote to defra and insisted was written they wanted a plan that was um prepared by conservationists and supported um by the more 
the moor owners and those that work on on the, on the moors. Um, Defra spent about two years uh, in talks preparing that preparing that that plan, um, and the RSPB were a full part of that process. Uh, it was published in January, and had enjoyed the full support um, of the uh, the Moorland Association. Um, who's the representative body of the moor owners, uh, the National Gamekeepers Organization, um, and the Game and Wildlife Conservation Trust, and it was supported initially by the RSPB too. So that was all um, fully there. So uh, since then, uh, the RSPB um, have withdrawn from it, um, but it's now the government's plan, it's DEFRA's plan, and it's still going ahead. So it doesn't matter whether the RSPB leave it or we, the GWCT, decided that we were going to leave it. The plan is still going ahead. So the plan's not stopped as a result of the RSPB withdrawing from it. Though, of course, it'd be nice to have them involved in it. Do, do we know the reasonings behind them leaving? Yes, they've been quite clear. Um, they've, um, they've said quite publicly they felt that the plan wasn't, um, wasn't, wasn't delivering results uh, quick enough. Even though um, they helped write it? So they said... Um, it's not delivering results quick enough. So that was within six months of the plan being published, and the plan hasn't has yet to be fully implemented. So the, the um, brood management and the southern range reintroduction um, hasn't actually been put in place on the ground. So, but that's for, they're free to make you know their own choices. We're all free mm -hmm. to choose which bits we want to get involved in. Um, and DEFRA have made it perfectly clear if they don't want to be involved in those pieces, that's fine. They are still involved in some of the other parts of the plan. So they are still involved with the satellite tacking. Uh, they're still involved with the uh, the nest monitoring and the winter roost protection, and they're still involved um, with the uh, partners against wildlife crime. So they're still involved with four parts of the six-part plan. So what, why happy with that. why do you think that the the pinup species of the hen harrier is the one that they go on about the most? Uh, I'm talking about people that are against uh, grouse shooting when there are actually many other species that need help as well. Um, I suppose, um, to be fair, it's clearly a, a you know the frustration that there is this, there's a demonstrate there's a monitored and proven conflict in between the interests of grouse moors and the hen harrier. It's not just a theoretical thing. We've proven it uh, through the studies at Langham that it is a, a real case of conflict. Mm. Once you've established that it is a real case of conflict, you then have to decide what your remedy is. Um, we support the, the approach which DEFRA has taken because it is pragmatic because you, you have a commitment to both maintain the moors and the gamekeepers in their jobs alongside uh, a hen harrier population in England and Wales, which seems entirely um, pragmatic and sensible. The preferred remedy um, of the RSBB is that um, the gamekeepers should leave the hen harriers alone, and once they have recovered, um, then there can be some discussion about how the population is, is going to be managed. Mm. So it's just a question of different perspectives about what the remedy is. Yeah, I mean, there seems just from from the the numbers from Langham, there is a very clear issue. There is that the proliferation of of hen harriers as a single species, off the back of the management, eventually flips over and becomes negative. And getting that balance, it must it's going to be very very difficult to get that. And 
ultimately there's there might be a point on any of these moors where there simply is too many hen harriers is that going to be a relocation situation or i mean they they travel or can travel vast vast it, distances yes they can they can um tra- travel high distances remember um, they're semi-colonial nesters, so they like nesting together. That's part a, a, a defence mechanism um, because they're quite noisy, smelly nesters. Quite easy for a fox to find them. Um, the best way of, of protecting themselves against um, these ground uh, predators, of which we have um, footage of um, the fox approaching the, the nest this year at, at Langham. Mm-hmm. Um, is is to nest together so they can mob the fox and persuade the fox to move on, and it's all too difficult. Um, but this this idea of um, maintaining uh, the populations of, of hen harriers alongside um, grouse has been talked about for some time. But that one of the things that DEFRA is uh, proposing to implement is some the uh, brood management scheme, which is something that we first published in a scientific paper in 1998. It's taken some time to get there, but this is the idea that um, once the first hen, hen, hen harrier has settled uh, on a moor, well, the chances are another one will come and settle on that moor. Um, but in the event that the second nest is within um, 10 kilometers, say, of the first nest, then one knows uh, when the chicks hatch out, um, the chicks would then be taken to a, to an aviary for the next six or eight weeks. Um, and that is the time when the hen um, would have removed the most number of grouse in order to feed her own young. So you remove the conflict, and then six or eight weeks later, you would hack those um, hen harrier chicks, the fledged ones, back into the wild. Okay. So you back onto a to a to a, to a more exactly where it would need to be agreed, but it'd be another more in the in the local area. This is not not moving them to the south of England. So um, hacking them back into the moor. This is not new. It's been done in France for Montague Harriers for over 20 years. It's been scientifically monitored. It's been done in the Iberian uh, Peninsula as well for hen harriers. This is fairly standard practice in Europe. Um, it's just we haven't actually implemented it in the UK. So yeah, it's just uh, keeping a check on on the densities so that the impact is brought to a level that uh, everybody can. So, so there is there is a, a, a proven solution to an extent uh, out there. Yes, I mean the the, the remedy um, which the which so is part of this six point plan which which Defra have put together. So this is uh, spe- specifically for England and Wales. Um, it has been proven in other countries. Um, you've got to remember that um, you know even in the 1970s, um, there were over 40 uh, raptor species were being boosted by populations are being boosted by this type of, of management. This is not a new idea. Um, it's been been used for decades. Um, and what DEFRA are advocating is that we should trial this um, in England to see if it if it will provide a remedy which unlocks the conflict. Uh, in between the interest of the hen harry and the interest of the grouse mall. Before we go on to the grouse debate, um, I just want to put to bed uh, one sort of overarching issue, and we we talk about this from time to time, and I'm sure it goes without saying, but one of the conflicts is illegal persecution. Now, yes. we have laws and regulations in place 
it is illegal to kill raptors and that yep. is what we have to work within if you don't like the rules you got we always say work within them or work to change them that's the only two choices that you have I, I guess it goes without saying the GWCT support the current uh, the, the current regulation, which is you have to work within it uh, and illegal persecution won't be tolerated. But what is your, your take on that? Because it's something which I think there's very little of it going on anymore, but undoubtedly it still must happen. Well, the important you know, point is with all, with all crime is both, both to target the crime itself and also the, the motive behind it. So there's a total commitment by the by the police in terms of making sure that the, the law is enforced. Um, but also we need to be pragmatic about trying to trying to remove uh, the motivation. And if we can make sure that there is a a legal mechanism that reduces and removes conflict in the interests of the species um, of conservation concern, then that has to be a good thing. Mm-hmm. And there is a mechanism within uh, the existing European uh, legislation and no doubt in any future uh, post-EU uh, legislation, which which allows for that. Um, so if you have a, an, an airport and you have birds of prey circling the airport, you, for safety, there is a mechanism you can apply for a license in order to be able to control or remove those, those species that may be lethal, it may, may be sub-lethal. And likewise, we should be applying the same mechanism um, for farming, which we do, and we should be applying the same thing um, when it comes to, to looking after these ground smalls. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's uh, that would be the most level-headed approach. Is, uh, I suppose what people on the sort of shooting side would say is that it's very difficult to uh, try and get any movement with regard to... I, I know there has been a little bit... Um, on buzzards that's the probably the most recent species that's been talked about with regard to controlling but it's quite difficult to get movement on any of those protected species i mean raven's another one that comes up yes you can get licenses to control a certain number but it's generally felt that it's never enough yes and i think that's why we need more evidence better evidence you've got to take it back to back to the policy makers and make that clear um, and we've got to we've got to keep working on these things. I mean, it's hardly surprising while while some species are are being being threatened um, that we we wish to protect them. Um, but we've also got to recognise that a lot of the wildlife legislation that was written um, allowed for species protection to be ratcheted up um, without any consideration for when in the future it may need to to ratchet it down so that it doesn't they don't start exploiting another wildlife population. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's move on to the grouse debate. Now we've kind of dipped in and out of this, but maybe I could just get an overview of, obviously it was a positive result, uh, from a shooting point of view and the spinoff of that is a positive, uh, result in our opinion, uh, from a conservation point of view, because it was basically thrown out, um, by parliament, but what it was, is your overall comment on the debate that took place? Well, I was there to listen to it for all three hours of it, um, and what I thought was was refreshing was, um, whilst it is possible to build up um, a great deal of interest using social media on just about any issue uh, that you care to think of, um, in reality, if you want to start changing anything um, at Westminster, you have to have real evidence. It is not good enough to say... Um, 
had the, the grouse moors caused uh, flooding at Hebden Bridge, I've got 10 people in the public gallery behind me um, who, who believe it. You've actually got to turn up with some paperwork and some evidence because politicians have to, have to go on factual evidence. And that is why at the debate there was not a single MP which actually supported the motion to ban driven grouse shooting. Not a single one. No, I have to say that, uh, like I said, I just watched that again last night for the second time. And it was very obvious to me that there was certainly seemed to be um, a lack of preparation. Mark Avery was obviously the man fronting this petition. He, he started it, largely supported by Chris Packham. I don't think it would have had the same uh, attention if it hadn't been no, Chris Packham's so. support. But I would have thought he would have come a little bit more prepared. There were a lot of questions thrown at him where he... He simply had no other. He had no evidence other than his own opinion, uh, which which I was kind of surprised by. I thought he would be a bit more prepared. Yes, than that. let's remember there were two two separate parts. One part was the oral evidence session, which lasted one hour, um, where uh, Mark Avery and Jeff Knott yeah. spoke for half an hour, and then Amanda Anderson and Liam Stokes spoke for for half an hour, answering questions to the petitions committee, where the EFRA committee were also in attendance at Westminster. After that, a couple of weeks later, there was then a debate in Westminster Hall for three hours where only MPs were able to speak. Mm-hmm. And it was that one where, um, so in the oral evidence session, Mark Avery was able to say, answer questions for half an hour and be able to say whatever he liked. Uh, the MPs asked him all sorts of questions. Um, but then when it came to the debate, in the, um, it was just MPs speaking. Of course, the MPs had to go on real evidence. So going on um, hearsay wasn't enough for them, for any of them. Just a pull out from uh, the co- comments made by Mark. He wanted to see um, half a million pounds a year in tagging of... Well, he, I don't think he actually specified hen harriers, but I assume that he was talking about, he was talking about tagging in general. Is that kind of monitoring, and some would say interference in a way on such a grand scale, is it necessary? Is that necessary for what he wants to achieve? Of course, that depends on what you want to achieve. There's quite a lot known about um, bird movements and, and where they fly and their migration routes. Um, more information would be would be helpful, I for any of those any of those species, um, but I suspect that Mark he wasn't I agree he wasn't explicit, but I think he was implying that if you monitored more birds of prey, I think if he was listening to this, he would say it's hen harriers, but other birds of prey too. Mm-hmm. Um, then we would we'd be able to to catch the culprits um, as he would see it um, and be able to identify where they were. Um, and then we'd better lock some people up, and I'd be able to be able to demonstrate things. Uh, I, was just, um, I was just going to say that the reason for him wanting to tag is to identify where they're going missing. Um, one of the things actually that Jeff Not said, who was the for, for those people who don't know the the head of nature policy for RSPB, who was also speaking, um, was that the reason, and he he did that. I I watched it back to make sure this is what he said. He said the reason that there were only three pairs in England was because of illegal persecution, which I thought was quite an overarching statement to make and clearly possibly um, illegal persecution had a part to play but that's clearly not true to say that there, there are only three pairs entirely because of illegal persecution uh, that's correct in natural England um, who are the statutory body um, for, for trying to trying to look at this are quite clear that there are there are 
about six, if you like, totally separate causes of um, that are su suppressing the, the population. We illegal persecution or legal killing um, is is one of those, um, but it clearly can't be the only one. I mean, yeah. birds of prey do they suffer mortality in their particularly highly in their, their first few years anyway when they breed like any wildlife population. Um, they do get predated and eaten themselves. So there are all sorts of reasons why um, they might think, and also a shortage of food. Um, yep. If there's not enough food for them, they will just starve. So it, illegal, illegal killing is not the only reason, um, but it is cer certainly one of them, and it's wrong to suggest that it is the only reason. I mean, I, I, and I can't, my mind, my uh, memory is failing me now. I can't remember whether it was uh, this year or last year that there wasn't actually uh, any successfully, um, any hen harrier nests on RSPB reserves which successfully fledged, but you would assume there would be no illegal persecution on a, an RSPB reserve. But I, I think that was uh, almost entirely due to um, predators. Yes, I'm not sure how much data has actually been released um but you know, by yes. them or by others. Um, Just from what the, I read in newspapers. Exactly, yeah. exact cause of the yeah. cause of failures of of those nests. Um, but yes, um, the there were certainly several nests where the males uh, went missing. Uh, the hen then abandons the nest, um, and the nest then fails. Um, however, it would be fair to say, um, back in 2007, there were successful attempts by Natural England. They managed to demonstrate how to diversionary feed a hen while she's sitting on the nest um, if the male goes missing. Okay. So it is it is possible. So the the, the question mark is also at at these nests where we do have them. Perhaps we should also be having provision there to be able to move quickly to be able to start diversionary feeding in the event that the male. Um, does go missing. This is quite important because quite often the male can be provisioning more than one nest. So if one male disappears, it may be that there are two nests fail. Well, that's interesting. I didn't actually know that. Yeah. Let's um, leave the grouse debate and leave grouse, although it's connected, uh, well, we, we touched on it earlier, and talk about hares because in probably, I think it must have probably, it was probably about February, March this year, we saw. Um, a big hoo-ha in the media because there had been a picture taken, I think it was somewhere on the, uh, it was in Grampian somewhere, I think it was just off the A9. I can't quite remember exactly where it was, but it was just off one of the roads uh, and there were a, a pile of snowy white uh, mountain hares in yep. a trailer or a cart or something. And of course this hit the media and it um, regurgitated everything that we saw probably exactly 12 months before about whole, how all the grouse moors are killing all the mountain hares and they're responsible for the declines. And I think <laughs> just about the same time I was listening to radio, one of the radio stations in the morning driving to work and they were asking people uh, to phone in if they've ever seen a mountain <laughs> hare so that they can see where where you can find them. And I, I'd, I'd have to chuckle to myself because I've uh, I've seen... Thousands when and we, thousands of hares. When we go out filming, especially you know when they get their winter coat, it's just little white cotton balls running around everywhere. the hill everywhere. Yeah. But, so where where do we stand on that, Andrew? I mean, what is the? It, it's a bit, little bit like the the grouse discussion. There is there is the truth, and then there is the the general perception held by the general public. Yeah, 
But the important thing to remember here is that the species which, which we call a mountain hare or the, or the blue hare um, used to exist right across the UK. It exists in every single county. Um, it was only when the Romans brought over what we now know as the brown hare uh, and introduced that into the countryside, it outcompeted the mountain hare and all the blue hare, and the mountain hare or blue hare started retreating north into the higher ground. The reason it likes going to the higher ground is because the brown hares won't go there. They don't compete. They don't like the habitat. So actually, the, the mountain hares have retreated themselves onto suboptimal habitat. Um, they'd like to be everywhere, but they're just staying up on the high ground because the brown hares won't go there. Now, if you take that on a step further, they are quite vulnerable when they're up on these um, in the uplands. Um, from predation by by foxes, um, and they and they can and they also, they, they clearly um, the foxes can take significant numbers of them. So much so, we think that they can suppress uh, the the mountain hare population. However, the current uh, estimate for mountain hares in Scotland is uh, approximately 350,000. Um, there's no evidence of range contraction, which is the first indication of a species in, in trouble. But it is also worth adding that they're a notoriously difficult species uh, to count. Mm. So as they're moving around and, and keep hiding back down in the heather, it's quite difficult to know whether you've seen a second hare or you're still looking at the first hare. And that's why uh, we're, work we're working closely with SNH and the James Hutton Institute on a new methodology for being able to effectively uh, count mountain hare populations. But we do know that mountain hares thrive where there are gamekeepers. And that's because both from a habitat point of view and from a predator control point of view. Yes, so the act of, we are talking earlier about the, is the heather burning, so the young shoots, uh, the young heather coming up. Uh, is what these mountain hares need. They need the, uh, the nutritional uh, shoots there to be able to eat them. Um, and they've also got the protection because the uh, fox numbers would be reduced where the gamekeepers are. So the, the numbers are, are likely to, to thrive. Now, not every year, but a lot of years, a lot of estates cull a number of, uh, a number of mountain hares. And this is where the, the issue arises in terms of uh, what is seen from people, you know, shouting out against the culling of all these tens of thousands of hares, um, the, the true numbers of which are, are lower. Why is it necessary for them to cull a certain number of, of hare? Well, we need to again go back to, back to some first principles here. The mountain hare population, just like the brown hare population, um, can massively cycle. And sometimes these can be uh, by a factor of 10. Uh, or a tenfold increase before then suddenly dropping. So you have these natural these natural cycles. Um, where the uh, where the gamekeepers are, they can they can hold quite high numbers. We see that both for mountain hares and for brown hares. And um, in the same way that for brown hares, if the if the numbers go up, they can do quite significant crop damage in the lowlands. And so the farmers may want to control the numbers so that they. They're held at a level below that, which starts damaging the, the crops. So you want a healthy population of brown hares, but not so high that damage the crops, as happened on our own farm in Leicestershire, where the brown, num brown hare numbers uh, recovered from a very low base and became very high and then started damaging the crops. The same thing starts happening in the, 
in the uplands. You can have, um, in some years, you may have low numbers of mountain hares. In other years, uh, they may well peak. If they peaked at such a level that they're then causing a, a further um, slight complication or impact, it may well be that the decision is made uh, to cull and take off um, some of that population, as you might do with deer. Yeah. I think it, it, we're we're just in the process of putting together a a film on uh, on on mountain hares and yep. why they are culled and why they're controlled and and something which is probably um, misunderstood is that quite often there is a government agency intervention so SNH uh, if you if you're up in Scotland where there are triple SIs which you were talking about earlier uh, a, a good example on, on one of the estates up in Grampian is an area of of junipers now when the snow comes those junipers can be hit incredibly hard by mountain hare and it's within the interest of the triple si to be much harder in that particular area on the hares than it would be on maybe another part of the state for that habitat which has been designated and i i I guess the same would be true over the border in england yes um and another thing which is often cited is um in relation to uh, ticks uh the tick population in the in the UK wide uh, is increasing because um, it's generally uh, the winters are not as cold, not killing off as many ticks. Um, and if you happen to be in an area with a very high uh, tick abundance, they're also one of the vectors for for moving for ticks being able to move around. And if you have undertaken all your other measures, which you'd need to do first. Um, to control tick numbers, it may well be um, if you have a high abundance of mountain hares um, that you may want to undertake a limited cull to be able to help with that too. But you'd have to make sure that you were doing it in a sustainable way. Absolutely. Um, since you mentioned tick, it is my understanding, but you might be able to correct me here, that the only um, group of people doing active tick management is actually shooting estates. Uh, that's correct, and if the RSPB were listening to that, they'd acknowledge that too. They spoke at the uh, Raptor Conference in Sheffield in September, and it was one of the five things that they recognised that driven the benefits of uh, driven grouse smalls was tick control. There's no one else looking at this, and ticks are becoming an increasing problem, both from, from human health, um, but also for wildlife. And, and what is it with regard to wildlife in particular? We, we're actually going to be doing a podcast on uh, Lyme's disease at some point in reference to, to, to humans. But what is the impact on the wildlife that is uh, that is particularly negative with high burdens of tick in areas? It's often not. Um, it's not the, the louping ill. It, it's such. It's just. It's just the effect of having so many ticks on them, um, particularly for birds. Uh, take just the, the loss of blood. Um, and in addition to that, if that if that wasn't enough, if you have too many ticks. Uh, around the eyes, for example, it may be that they can't effectively see, and they're not able to um, not able to, be able to feed themselves, and so you end up with poor body condition, and they end up dying as a result of that. So it often it won't be the, the the disease itself; it'll just be the sheer burden of, of being the host and carrying that many ticks. Yeah, no, it's quite horrendous when you see the the, the young chicks with that amount yes. of ticks on them. Yeah, it is. There were some uh, I wanted to say good pictures, but good pictures in terms of. They they showed the effect of it uh, that came out of I think it was the Grampian Merlin group. Uh, oh yeah, this year, this yeah. summer. Baby grouse chicks and yeah. they, they must had pl- thirty and plus as well. plus ticks yep. on them. 
Yep. So I mean, it's it's just the so it is not necessarily the spread of the disease to the birds. It's just sh- the sheer burden of of carrying this this many ticks on them. I want to go from uh, hare to woodcock, uh, and then we'll uh, finish up just uh, touching on Chris Packham. Um, Woodcock, fascinating bird, beautiful bird, and the GWCT are doing some really, really interesting research. I was just having a lecture, uh, an update on the maps last night that you have tracking these uh, fascinating birds. If, if anyone's not seen the map, you should go and check yeah, it we'll out. Yeah, we'll put the link yeah. in the podcast. To get, you can go and see where all... In fact, you, you're actually able to... Um, there's a Just Giving link there as well to help su- support that project, if I read that correctly. But maybe you can talk about that particular project and what you're finding out by tracking these woodcock migrations. Yeah, so the um, the Game Wildlife Conservation Trust has undertaken a lot of work on woodcock. Um, this is a particularly mysterious and, and cryptic bird, and, and really it's typically a bird which only sportsmen see, so it's hardly surprising that they're the group which have funded most of this conservation work. Um, they've the, all seri- a series of different studies have been uh, been undertaken, but including trying to understand the migratory habits um, of the European woodcock. So, where where do those woodcock which arrive in the autumn, in the October moon, where do, where have they actually come from, um, and when do they leave and, re- and return and, and go home? And we know that they will typically they'll be covering distances of up to 3,000 uh, kilometres, and they'll be undertaking these. If you look at the website, in some astonishing leaps, and we don't know quite how they're managing to do it as such a small bird, but they will typically, we believe, they're climbing up to very high altitudes and catching winds, and are able to sometimes do up to 800 or 1,000 kilometres in a leap, which is amazing, amazing for such a small bird. Um, so we've got much better understanding of, of their their habits we need to understand more of it because it's not just that their summer breeding grounds in russia and scandinavia we need to understand but also any potential stopping over points on the way uh, where they need to be able to feed um, because when they come when they do stop we know that they stop for about a fortnight to build up enough strength to then climb up to high altitude again and set off and start gliding on these on the, on the winds hmm. looking at the uk resident uh, population which is a a much smaller population. Um, we need to go back and remember that there's no accurate records of woodcock staying here throughout the year until um, you start seeing the planting of uh, pheasant covers, woodland pheasant covers. Um, that's the beginning of woodcock uh, wishing to stay here throughout resident throughout the year. Um, those populations. Uh, increased in the 60s and 70s with the planting of a large commercial forestry blocks. Um, but then since then, we're noticing a slow decline in the resident woodcock population, but not uh, the migratory population. So we're trying to understand that a bit more now. You also see on our website, we started fitting um, some transmitters onto resident woodcock. We're watching their feeding habits. We're trying to understand more about which woods they use and how far they forage from those woods and out into the fields so that we can try and come up with some management prescriptions on both being able to help manage woodland and the nearby farmland so actually sportsmen can actually help the resident woodcock population uh, to recover. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that will be very interesting to see what comes out of that. And what is your, your current advice 
in terms of where the population sits now and actually shooting them through the season because they are you know, a legitimate uh, game bird. That's right. Um, our, our advice now is if you don't understand uh, what is happening to your local population, you shouldn't be shooting. Okay. So you should be monitoring them. This is no different from us uh, giving advice on uh, grey partridge or black grouse. Um, you need to know what, what is happening. Um, that is both for whether they are resident uh, or migratory woodcock, because we know even if you have migratory woodcocks, if you have no woodcock present all summer, uh, and then in, the, uh, in October and November, the woodcocks start arriving, so you know that they're all migratory. If you overshoot that population, um, we know that they are site faithful to their wintering grounds as well. So if you overshoot them this year, um, then that presents a problem in the future for you. Yeah, that's actually so, a really important point yeah. so you, a lot yeah. of people so, don't realise. Yeah, so you need to understand um, your local populations. And so if you don't understand them, then you need to show restraint. Um, and that's the, that's the primary message. But there are a lot more details on our website about it also to do with cold weather uh, and shooting on flight lines, which people need to think about carefully. Yeah, no, we, we'll stick that all in the description of the podcast. Yeah. Um, we're getting close to the end here. And uh, the last thing I wanted to just touch about was uh, Chris Packham. And the reason for that, uh, primarily apart from him being particularly vocal and, as I said earlier, a big supporter of the e-petition started by Mark Avery, which um, caused the parliamentary debate, uh, is that he was, uh, the BBC were investigating him for, for wrongdoing in terms of comments and have cleared him for that. What kind of impact do you think someone with the, the platform that Chris Packham has, um, what do you think the impact that he has on what the public see and the information that they take in when he's he's so vocal and a lot of people would argue one-sided well the bbc is a very trusted brand so if anybody at the bbc starts you know speaking their, their personal opinion on something um that you know that has that has an impact um the complaint in relation to chris packham was whether um he as a as a bbc presenter um, was voicing his personal views um, on a controversial subject. And there are very clear rules, BBC guidelines, that BBC presenters must not voice their own views. Mm -hmm. um, the BBC, effectively, they've thrown that out because the, they've said that Chris Packham is employed on a contract basis. He's not actually an employee of the BBC. Um, we'll leave it to others to decide whether that is, that is fair or appropriate. But clearly, it does have an impact and particularly where um, personal views are being presented, which are contradictory or contradict what the evidence base which is available or presents a degree of certainty about particular parts of the evidence without actually presenting all of the evidence or the context which it's seen in. Yeah, no, I would encourage uh, people having listened to this podcast where I would hope uh, everybody would view it as it's been a, a very a very level and honest discussion to go back and have a look at the series of short films that Chris did uh, in the build-up to uh, getting um, a greater and greater following for the for the petition, where he talked about all the the negative aspects of. of I think I think there's a series of about six of them. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah, and just compare what he said to you know what we've just discussed with Andrew, and it would be interesting um, to draw those comparisons. I think. Um, Andrew, it's been fantastic speaking to you, and, and I, I, I think there's been there's been so much within this podcast that people can can take away 
Uh, I'm not even quite sure where to start writing the description <laughs> when we put this up so that people know what we're going to be talking about. Obviously, uh, uh, grouse shooting has featured heavily and, and rightly so with current discussions that have been on it. Uh, you know, the GWCD, do, uh, CT, sorry, do some fantastic work and I would encourage anybody who doesn't uh, or who wants to know more or doesn't know that much about them to go and uh, check you guys out on your website, see the work that you're doing, see the work that you've done. And, uh, you know, the, the number of scientific papers that uh, the, the GWCT have been part of is, is quite staggering. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a really good organization to uh, support on the work that you're doing. And if you sign up, you get an email and uh, with the latest research and stuff like Absolutely. that, which, is, uh, which I read. Good. Well, thank you very much indeed. And um, if anybody uh, listening has any other questions, they're welcome to get in touch direct and I'll do my best to answer them. Thank you very much, Andrew. Thank you very much for listening to the show. I think that probably is going to be one of the most balanced and level-headed um, discussions about driven grouse shooting you will probably hear anywhere. So we, as we said at and the start... worthy of sharing. Share. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Winning competition time. Yes. You have a chance to win uh, some Smith Optics Elite safety glasses, which are obviously designed for shooting. They come with two lenses, a shaded one and a clear one. And if you want to win these, it is very, very simple. Okay, so it's the pin post on Facebook. And all you have to do is if you are on a shoot day or involved in shooting in any way, beating or anything like that, then put a picture in the pin post. Yeah. And if you're on Instagram, tag then us. tag us in the picture and we'll just judge the best picture. That's yep. it. And we'll so announce we'll... it in two weeks' time. Yep. Thank you very much for listening once again. Don't forget that this podcast is supported by the Scottish Association for Country Sports. If you want to see more of what we are up to and what we're doing, visit our website, which is www.thepacebrothers.com. And don't forget to check out our wilderness hunts and also the shop, which is on the website. Remember, you can download this on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and watch it on YouTube as well. Thank you very much.